So today, if you saw in the front of your worship folder or were listening to me intro the service, it's the last Sunday of the church year. Um, and it's an unusual way in which this Sunday falls. But coming to the end of this season of Trinity, the end of the church year, that also means we come to the end of this sermon series, this turning point series where we've been looking at these critical moments in our lives as Christians where we have the option, we have the choice, whether we're going to follow God's will or whether we're going to follow our own will. I want to introduce the, the subject matter, the lesson that we're going to study today, and, and maybe the best way is just to come clean on this. Um, when you get your December newsletter, which I think will be in mailboxes, the email boxes this week, and physical ones we'll have out there next Sunday, uh, I want you to take a moment and page to the Word and Worship article, and I've written down the introduction to the next season, the opening of the next church year, the season of Advent. But before I do so, I actually explain the abnormality of this year. Uh, I'm the one that's charged with setting up these sermon series, choosing texts, and, and working themes. Uh, and Pastor Ray and I'll kick around what we might like to study and what we feel the congregation might both be benefited and blessed by. And so I had done that for the Trinity season, uh, and I thought I had done that job thoroughly, only to find out I hadn't. Uh, because this year we have the unusual situation, and I can't remember the last time it happened this way, where we actually have a Sunday in Trinity that falls after Thanksgiving. Almost without fail, uh, Trinity season uh, basically is coming to its end. You have our Thanksgiving worship, and then the season of Advent starts. Not this year. So I plotted this all out, charted it all out, and the thing I didn't tell you in the article was I simply forgot about this Sunday. Uh, Julie will attest to that. I was scrambling for a penis, and graciously you agreed uh, to jump in. I think Barb was willing to help out too. Uh, but it left this dilemma, so what should we wrap this series up with? Um, and Pastor Naya and I were, were discussing it, and we both liked the idea of ending with uh, the events at the end of John's Gospel, the last of the Gospels written, uh, the last verses. Uh, but interesting enough, we had a difference of which section we liked. I'm the guy with the mullet, by the way, just in case you didn't. I'm not that thin, I know, but he's got the foe. Okay, he liked that section. And I liked the section that followed it. And, and we kicked this around. I finally said, you know what? Why don't we, uh, for the one time this series, each preach on the text of our choice. And he kind of liked that idea. So Pastor A is preaching on that today. Uh, it is the context, this very specific context to what we're talking about. It's during the 40 days after Easter. Um, and Jesus has made several appearances. And this is one that's very unique in that uh, the disciples were waiting around. They kind of get tired and frustrated. They go back up to Galilee, seven of them we're told. And one morning, Peter says, hey, let's go fishing. Of course, that was their, their fun and, and their profession. So they get in a boat, go out, fish all night, nothing. All of a sudden, this guy shows up on the shore and goes, hey, throw your nuts out on the other side. And they get this monster catch of fish. And of course, immediately, John turns to Peter and goes, it's the Lord. And Peter gets all excited. He, he doesn't wait to finish the catch or the boats to get any jumps in the water, swims, runs, to greet Jesus. And to remind you, uh, one of the events that had led up to this being so special is Peter's threefold denial of Jesus on uh, the night before his crucifixion. Uh, he denied knowing Jesus and basically not only put his soul in jeopardy, but divorced himself of the work to which Jesus had called him. Of course, they get to the shore. Jesus has got breakfast cooking for them. They kind of all just chat. Nobody wanted to talk about, well, you are Jesus, right? Uh, but at a certain point, Jesus turns to Peter, and then we have that threefold reinstatement. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. You know the story. It's that leading up to our 
text, and our gospel lesson serves as the transition or the bridge from what Pastor A is teaching this morning to what we're going to be studying this morning. It is Jesus turning to Peter and prophesying to him the way in which he would die. Uh, the word's not used in the English or Greek, but basically it says you're going to be a martyr. Uh, you're going to lose your life for your faith. And this serves as an excellent transition into what we're going to be studying this morning. So I wanted to include these verses with the text that we will study as well, give you the bigger picture so that we can take a look at our part of this lesson where Jesus tells Peter and then ultimately us to focus. I am telling you the truth. When you were young, you used to get ready and go anywhere you wanted to. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you up and take you where you don't want to go. In saying this, Jesus was indicating the way in which Peter would die and bring glory to God. Then Jesus said to him, Follow me. Peter turned round and saw behind him that other disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who had leaned close to Jesus at the meal and had asked, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about this man? I want him to live until I come. What is that to you? Follow me. So a report spread among the followers of Jesus that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say he would not die. He said, if I want him to live until I come, what is that to you? All right, Ours, our specific study is the end of that when Peter uh, starts to talk about John. Uh, and you've already kind of gotten familiar with the very specific context, but there's a much larger context here I think sometimes we forget about or fail to realize, which plays heavily into understanding what's going on here. Uh, one of that is the fact that John was the last of the four Gospels written. A best estimate was he wrote it in the early uh, 90s of the end of the first century, which means several things. The other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, had been out there for a while, and that's one of the reasons why John's Gospel is so different than the other three, because a lot of the, the summary of Christ's ministry has already been covered by the others, so John goes at it from a different angle. The other thing that's important to note is by the time that John writes this gospel, all of the other apostles were dead. And for the people who are reading this gospel for the first time, for many of them, it's part of their history. And for some of them, it's part of their ancient history. And so as John is talking about the events of Christ's ministry and then ultimately wants to bring his gospel to a conclusion, the Holy Spirit compels him to remind people of who he is. And I want you to note immediately how interesting it is of all the things the Holy Spirit could have chosen as an example to remind these readers who this uh, disciple and then ultimately apostle is. The one that was chosen were the events of Monday, Thursday evening in the upper room. And the way in which John identifies himself is to refer back to something that he had written in, in chapter 13. And it's that event where Jesus is revealing, one of you is going to betray me. And John was sitting on one side of Jesus and Peter seems to have been across the table and, and kind of, hey, John, ask him who he's talking about. And so John, if you will, jogs the memories of his reader. Oh yeah, the other gospel writers wrote about this, but this gives us some insight that we, we didn't have. And this kind of sets a scene not only for our lesson, 
But something that is, is I'm surprised I had missed it for so many years in the Gospel of John and then supported uh, through all of the other Gospels as well. And maybe there's no other way to say this, but the conclusion is, is that John and Peter were friends. And I don't just mean good friends. They were literally best friends. You might think, well, how, how do we get to this conclusion? When you start connecting the dots, it's, it's just right there. For instance, uh, maybe you remember that in John's gospel, he never actually refers to himself by name. He instead calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And if you don't know the context of, of John's gospel, you think, well, that, that's kind of arrogant, isn't it? It's just the opposite. It's very much a humble act on John's part. He never wants to state his name uh, to elevate it to the level of the name of Jesus. It's not that Jesus didn't love the other disciples. He loved them all very much so. It's just a very humble way of referencing himself. The point is, is that every time he uses this phrase in his gospel, except the one situation where he's at the foot of the cross and Jesus gives John charge of his mother Mary, in every other single situation, it is in connection with Peter. So we find this natural togetherness, and when we start looking at the overall way that John records his gospel, it, it jumps out at us, beginning with when Jesus began his ministry. I think sometimes we forget this, I know I do, that before uh, John and then the brother of Peter, Andrew, became disciples of Jesus, they were first disciples of John the Baptist. So there was a natural connection between the families. And in fact, this lesson where John himself records it, originally they were following John the Baptist. They witnessed probably the baptism of Jesus. At very least, this records the next day of what takes place, that John, is with John, that John the Baptist is with John the Gospel writer and Andrew, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's encouraging them to no longer follow him, but to follow the Lord. And they do. They spend the day with him. And at the end of the day, Andrew goes and finds his brother Peter and tells him, we have found the Messiah. So there's this close proximity. Uh, there's the same desire to find that promise fulfiller of God the Father. But as you dig deeper, not only into John's account, but also the other Gospels, it's just amazing the connection between John and Peter. Uh, for instance, one of those is the fact that when Jesus finally calls these men into full-time ministry, we find they're back up in Galilee. They hadn't completely committed to following Jesus every day. They went back to their family labors. And it's interesting, these two families seem to have worked together to do the fishing because the first two official disciples of Jesus were Peter and his brother Andrew. And then immediately we find there are John and James and these become the first four full-time disciples of Jesus. At, at least it suggests a close proximity of location, probably of a work life together, and then leads to ultimately a friendship. And in the case of Peter and John, a best friendship. Uh, don't you also find it interesting that of the three accounts in Scripture, the raising of Jairus' daughter, the transfiguration, and then on Monday, Thursday evening, the prayers in Gethsemane, there's this, what we call an inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. And, and it makes sense to me, John and James were brothers, so there's going to be that natural uh, togetherness. But Peter is put into that group. They're not related. Uh, it seems that uh, this relationship is not only because of the one they had with Jesus, but the one that they had with each other. And then as you go further on, after the crucifixion and Easter, you hear in those 40-day accounts 
A lot of times, all of the disciples are hanging out together, uh, locked behind some door, hiding out because they're afraid of the Sanhedrin. But you will very rarely hear of these instances where there's only a couple disciples gathered together. There's the two Emmaus disciples, which we never actually learn their names. But then there's this account where it seems, at least on this occasion, Peter and John are hiding out by themselves without the rest of the disciples. Because when Mary gets the news that the tomb is empty and sees it for herself, she immediately races back to John and Peter and tells them about it. And those are the first two disciples to run out and to see that Jesus actually had risen from the dead. Which also is interesting because then after uh, the ascension of Jesus back into heaven, as work is beginning in the city of Jerusalem, John and Peter are a team. Uh, they're doing their work together. Acts 3 records uh, something that seems to have been a regular part of their routine. They would go to the temple when it was time to pray. On this particular day, they run into this man who was crippled. He's begging for money. That's the way they ordinarily did it. You put your, your uh, people who needed help by these popular spots so they could ask people for help. And Peter and John, they didn't have money to give him, but they gave him his legs back. They gave him his life back and, and changed it for him. But we see him working together, which also results then in the first arrest of any disciples, the first two arrested are Peter and John. Not only because they were doing these amazing miracles, but because they refused to stop telling people about Jesus and what he had come to do. So I hope at very least I've shown you um, that the larger context that serves the backdrop for today's lesson is this very deep and abiding friendship between two of these disciples, Peter and John. Now, what's interesting, and there's just one more level to this, is we don't know exactly how long Peter and John worked together in the land of Israel. But when the time came for them to part ways, in order to fulfill their calling as apostles, as those who were sent out by Jesus to speak the truth to others, um, that after the death of Paul, uh, Peter took over his job basically of oversight of those churches in Asia Minor. If you go to 1 Peter 1, he basically describes his duties. I'm the one that's charged with the churches in Pontus, Galatia, so on and, and so forth. It's also interesting, if you go to his second letter, that uh, Peter never forgot the words that we just heard, that gospel lesson that Jesus had told him the day of his death was approaching and that it would be a martyr's death. His death would bring glory to God. And, and we don't know the exact date, but it seems like uh, as time went on, eventually Peter was arrested, taken to Rome. It's believed that the second letter probably was written from Rome while he's imprisoned and awaiting his own execution. And that might not mean a lot to you, except that the one apostle who took over the work of Peter, which he had taken over from Paul, was John. Uh, it's believed he spent the majority of the end of his life in the city of Ephesus uh, in close proximity to those churches. You hear him speak about it in his writing to Revelation, those Asia, Asia Minor churches. And uh, except for a brief period of time when he also was arrested, not executed, but exiled to the island of Patmos, the majority of his time was then in Ephesus, where ultimately it is thought that's where he died and was buried. Now, why did I spend all of this time trying to convince you of this deep friendship between these two men? Because it's this question. After Jesus tells Peter, you're going to die as a martyr, 
The very next thing out of his mouth is, so, so what about this man? What about, what about John? And if you don't know that context, uh, we might be tempted to think, okay, Jesus just told Peter he's going to die probably a pretty cruel and horrible death. And the next thing out of his mouth is, what about John? You could think maybe he's a little bit jealous. If I have to struggle, if I have to face the end of my life in a pretty gruesome way, how about this guy? Uh, maybe it, misery loves company or what. At least that could be uh, somebody's line of thought. Or you might just think, here's a busybody who's curious. But that's not it. He, he cares about John. He cares deeply about John. Uh, he may not be so going so far as to say when would he die or, or how would he die, but at very least it seems that he cares enough about his best friend that if he too must face a difficult end to his life, is there something that he is, is a fellow apostle and as a brother uh, in faith, is there something I can do, Lord, to help him, to, to make the end of his life easier, to support and encourage him? And it's this larger context that which then if you will, kind of provides for us a turning point moment that I'm not sure we've spent a whole lot of time talking about through this series. Almost every single text that we looked at is, is kind of focused on our own spiritual battles, our own spiritual struggles, the choices that God gives us, that when we're facing a temptation or when we're facing the choice to do the godly thing, um, that in each and every one of those situations, the Holy Spirit blesses us with the ability to make the godly choice. We don't have to choose to sin. We can choose to do what God created us to do. We can choose what deep down in our souls we know God wants us to do. The battle, the turning point moment is, do we want to follow our own will or do we want to follow God's will? This final lesson seems to present to us a similar but different opportunity and that is what happens when somebody we care about very much, somebody that we love somebody we consider a brother and sister, uh, maybe by blood and maybe because of Christ, what happens when they're facing a, a spiritual battle, when they're facing their own turning point? What is our role in that when we see somebody we care about struggling uh, to come up with the right choice to do God's will? What do we do to be there for them? Uh, the reality is, is, is that we hope and pray the day comes when together we're finally shut of this life and all of these turning point moments uh, and spend eternity together where every day if we quote unquote wake up, our entire day that lays out before us is nothing but doing God's glory and living in a way for which we were ultimately created. But what do we do until then? I, obviously, one of the thoughts that probably pops in your head is, is pray for them. We, we pray for people we don't know, but we pray especially for those we do know. Uh, we're there if they need us, or at least hopefully we're there if they need us. But that also presents us with another spiritual challenge. And maybe our own turning point within this larger one is, is sometimes what happens is life gets so complicated or we get so busy or time seems to fly by that we, we lose our focus. We, we get distracted by so many things. We, we lose track of time. We lose track of our responsibilities. We lose track of our relationships. So much so that, that maybe when somebody desperately needs us, we're, we're not there for them. Or vice versa, when we need somebody to be in our corner, they're not there for us. At very least, this final turning point moment presents to us the importance, not only of the final days of our lives, but all the days of our lives. That when given the opportunity to do God's will, whether it's in our own life or in the life of others, that we never become so distracted 
that we never become so focused on what we haven't done that we forget what Jesus ultimately uh, commissions both John and then ultimately Peter to do. Hopefully this reminds us just how important that is. If you knew exactly how long you were going to be alive, would things be different? Imagine if every morning you were able to look into an hourglass that showed you exactly how much time you have, removing any unknowns or uncertainty. Would you approach your days differently? Certainly time would feel more real. Every grain of sand that slipped by would remind us of our mortality, of the days come and gone. But what about the sand that's left? In the possibilities yet to be explored. In this fast-paced world we live in, it's very easy to get caught up, to go into autopilot, to do what everyone else is doing without ever taking a second to examine ourselves. Every day, the sand in that hourglass gets lesser and lesser. And if you don't ask yourself what your purpose is, what makes you happy, what you're going to bring to the world, you know, someday you'll be all out of time. Our stay here is finite. You know, I often talk to people about their goals and aspirations, what makes them happy. And I find it crazy how many restrictions people place on themselves. Okay, in reality, we don't know how many trips around the sun we have. It is and always will be a mysterious component of life. But regardless of your journey, what you've done, what you've yet to do, there is no time for regret. I always wondered if the Lord offered us the opportunity to actually ask him, how long do I have yet to live? How many of us would actually want to know that answer? Uh, one of the things that I remember learning as I was growing up was to live every day as if it was your last. And one of the things I've found out by growing up is how quickly and easily we forget that. That we sometimes believe we're going to actually live here forever. God forbid. Look forward to the day when we can finally cross the finish line into the promised land and put behind us all of the challenges, troubles, and turning points of this life. But one of the things, and especially as I do get older in my own life, is I wonder if I get into those final days if I'm going to have regrets. Are there going to be those moments where I wonder, how did I so easily lose my focus about this? Or I got so worked up about that, and when in reality and in hindsight, none of it really mattered. That, that's kind of what's happening to Peter. And that's kind of what the Lord is warning him against. Because this last part, it, it seems overly complicated, but it's not. It's actually quite simple because there's this statement that 
Jesus says to Peter, if I want him to live until the day I return, so what, what's that to you? And he's not saying that in a snotty or sarcastic way. He's trying to emphasize to Peter, I've given you a task to do, and that's what I want you to focus on. This can become so distracting, this minutia, so much so that actually in those early days, it became a church legend that John never died. I told you that he probably died and was buried in Ephesus. Some people, uh, if you go back through church history, believe that he didn't physically die. He just fell asleep and was waiting for judgment day. The problem with that is, is, and we've worked through these before, Jesus speaks in a conditional statement where the second part can only come true if the first part comes true. And the question that would be before us, would it be Jesus' will to leave any single one of us alive until the day of his return? Now we know some people will be living, but for those who've already lived their full lives, why on earth would Jesus make them stay alive for one moment longer on this earth and not allow them to enter into the presence of heaven? In fact, if you go to the book of Hebrews, we know what Jesus' will is. The Holy Spirit inspired the writer of that to remind us that a day of judgment is set for us all. For most of us, that will be the day of our death, when our souls immediately go to be with Jesus in heaven and our bodies wait for the resurrection on that last day. I can't think of anything more comforting or encouraging to submit ourselves to that will of Jesus because who wants to live here forever? Broken, sinful, not what God created it to be. But this was becoming a distraction, not only for the church, but kind of for Peter too. And you might, might think, well, wait a minute. The Bible has this about John, but it never actually goes into detail about John's death. Truth of the matter is, the Bible only describes the death of one person, one apostle, I should say, and that's James, John's brother. In Acts 12, it talks about how he was executed because he was the head of the Jerusalem church. None of the other apostles, there's any information recorded for us about how they ultimately died. Everything is church history and legend. And the Lord does that because he wants to understand that's not the important point. What is important is focusing on and now for the second time, Jesus says it to Peter. First was in that part with Pastor A, and now is in our part, this you must follow me. That's your focus, Peter. I just reinstated you as apostle. Your job from this point forward is to be a disciple and to share the news of that with other people. And what's interesting is this word for follow. Literally, it means to be with and like Jesus. And of course, the first thought that popped into my head as I'm working through this is, what would Jesus do? That's the model, that's the focus for how we live our lives. Unfortunately, that has been so overused and, dare I say, commercialized even by the church that it's really lost its meaning. But what the Lord says to Peter, and I don't know if you grabbed this right away, he never actually answers this question. What about John? He says, Peter, if I wanted to tell you about that, I would have told you about it. Here's what you need to focus on, follow me. And in many ways, the Lord shares that very same lesson, final turning point lesson, with us. This is an intriguing way to wrap up this series, and I hope it's been as beneficial to you as it's been to me, because sometimes I stop to think about how much we get so wrapped up in this life. And I'm not saying we disregard it or it doesn't matter. But how many times have we lost our focus, even spiritually speaking, even religiously speaking? Uh, already at this point in my life, I can look back over all of the stupid things within the context of religion that have been argued about and debated and, and sometimes frustrated people and even drove them away from God. And in the end, it didn't matter 
a bit. And I think what has been lost in a lot of these discussions is Jesus' answer to Peter. Follow me. That's your focus. That's why I still have you here living on this earth. I want you to be with and be like me. And so I was thinking, what's the best way for me to not only encourage you to keep your focus, but then for every one of these lessons to go with you for the rest of whatever days the Lord chooses to give you? And this is the best I came up with. You all know the five-second rule, right? So you drop something on the floor, and apparently you have five seconds before any germs will touch it. Who makes this stuff up? Well, I I came across something very interesting. It's called the 10-second rule rule and it has to do with our spiritual lives so what I'm going to suggest is is that you commit this same process to your own minds and hearts that when the Lord offers you that moment of deciding do I follow God's will or do I follow my will that you submit your will to his that you stay focused on what our Savior has done for us and that for the rest of your earthly days you be with and be like Jesus Many of us like to think of ourselves as followers of Jesus, but when we sense God has actually given us opportunities to live it out, we're often hesitant, uncertain, and tempted to look the other way. It's like we have these dueling voices in our head and heart, one voice telling us to help, and the other voice giving us every excuse in the book not to help. You don't have time for this. They'll be fine. Someone else will stop and help. See, intuitively, we all know that obeying Jesus is going to cost us something. Time, money, embarrassment, something. But by doing nothing, we can save ourselves all of that. And life moves on comfortable and predictable, at least for us. Is it any wonder that our spiritual life feels so beige, more religious than alive? We wrestle with God over a small daily request, and yet most of us still dream of doing great things for Him someday. But the truth is, godly character is shaped less by our big dramatic decisions than it is by the cumulative impact of thousands of small acts of simple obedience, largely in obscurity. So how do we get better at saying yes to these promptings the Holy Spirit is giving us? Years ago, I began living by the 10-second rule. Just do the next thing you're reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do, and do it immediately before you change your mind. 